Proctor here with some quick announcements before we get into this episode. I would like to let everyone know about CodeMesh, a London-based conference dedicated to functional programming and alternative tech. It is going to run November 3rd through the 5th, and some of the speakers include guests of this show, including Reed Draper, Jessica Kerr, and Richard Meinrich. CodeMesh has graciously offered listeners of this podcast a 10% discount off the price of the conference if you use the discount code FNGeekery10 when you register. To find out more about CodeMesh and to register, visit CodeMesh.io. That's C-O-D-E-M-E-S-H dot I-O. Second, if you enjoyed the episode with Martin J. Logan talking about Erlang, Erlang Camp has offered listeners of this podcast 15% off tickets, including the dinner with speakers option, when you use the code FNG15. To find out more about Erlang Camp and to register, visit ErlangCamp.com. That's E-R-L-A-N-G-C-A-M-P dot com. And I look forward to seeing you there. Lastly, if you thought episode 12 with Adi Bulbwaka was interesting, even if you didn't agree with everything he said, I want to let you know that Global Day of Code Retreat is coming up on November 15th. There are going to be code retreats held worldwide on that day, and there is a good possibility there will be one in your area. If not, and you are interested in hosting one, the organizers of Global Day of Code Retreat do a great job to help you with everything you need to know. To find out more about Code Retreat, and to see if there will be one in your area, go to coderetreat.org. That's C-O-D-E-R-E-T-R-E-A-T dot org. Welcome to the 16th episode of Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Matt Podwasaki. Matt, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Matt Podwasaki. I'm a software developer at Microsoft. Currently, I'm working on the reactive extensions with Microsoft Open Technologies, and I'm mostly focusing a lot of my efforts right now on JavaScript, but also I take care of the .NET, Python, Ruby, and whatever I can do to help the C++ message, but a lot of that is quite frankly above my head. I like to speak at conferences. I've been around the world doing that, and it's been a lot of fun. I also am a conference organizer in uh, helping with JSConf and RobotsConf, the latter being one of my true passions, which is teaching people of all ages about what really is coming next in terms of what we're going to be working on in maybe the next 20 years, which is more bringing people that are traditionally software developers to hardware. I think it's pretty interesting and we had a good diverse crowd where people were bringing their kids and I'm really hoping that we can get a good audience this year as well. So yeah, very, very passionate about STEM education and so forth and really trying to bring up the next generation of software developers. Yeah, I caught you on a couple of podcasts with the .NET circuit about your work with reactive extensions and so I wanted to kind of get you on to talk a little bit about reactive programming and functional reactive programming. Sure. So based off my understanding, I think I first got a glimpse of that on one side of it from Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, where they were talking about streams in that book and data as a stream. But reactive programming seems to go a little bit more. Can you kind of give a good overview and intro to reactive programming for someone who's more unfamiliar with it? Yeah. So Really, what reactive programming, I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to nail down, as it were, because, you know, when you think of reacting to something, you just say it's responding to stimulus. But one thing that's come around since that time is the reactive manifesto, which is trying to codify exactly what reactive programming really means. I mean, because quite honestly, one could say that the reactive manifesto is nothing more than just taking some words and saying, yep. Okay, reactive manifesto, good. We have an understanding of what reactive programming is. But before, what I thought of reactive programming is, for example, Microsoft Excel is one of the world's largest reactive programming environments. You update cell A1, you update cell B1, and sure enough, in C1, where you had a particular algorithm that you're running, the result shows up in C1. And so each and every time that you change either A or B, C reacts to that particular thing. That's fine and that's interesting, but that's really hard to say is that all reactive programming really is. And so what the reactive manifesto says is that, well, it needs to be more event-driven in the fact that I'm not really pulling for data from the system, for example. 
I am basically registering an interest in this particular piece of data. And when the system is ready to send that data along, it pushes it through that channel that I've requested it in. So to me, that's the event-driven aspect of it. So it's not a pool-based where it's like if you're in .NET, you're dealing with IEnumerable when you're pooling, and you could be potentially blocked. In this case, you're just registering your interest through an event, and as the data comes in, boom, it's shoved at you. And some people try to bring in the scalability aspects of it. Am I that convinced of it? Not necessarily. But that is certainly one aspect of reactive programming in the fact that since you have this kind of pushed-based semantics, that scaling becomes a little bit easier in the fact that you can start to spin up things easily on demand. So, for example, I can add more observers or something like that to scale up or scale down to a particular thing. You can also scale up and scale down in terms of how many messages I really want to listen to or not. So in the case of, say, Rx, I can throttle it and say, I only care about a message if it only happens within a second of the last one, or I want a complete buffer of the past second or two. It's those kinds of things. Or you start talking about back pressure, where you can really start to say that I'm going to squeeze the hose and not let as much in or out, and then I'm going to degrade or improve the signal as it comes along. So that's another aspect, I think, of reactive programming that makes it interesting. Resilience, of course, is one of those things because you're dealing with an environment that's very much push-based. You need kind of a way to respond to exceptions as they come along. In Rx's perspective, we have quite a number of those kind of aspects that you can do. So in the main parlance of Rx, we have three kinds of stimulus that you can respond to. The next, when a next message comes on, and optionally terminated by either an on-air or uncompleted message. And from there, so what we can deal with when we get those on-air messages, we can do several things. We can catch them and do something with the exception. We can continue on and say, well, that's fine. Continue on, nothing to see here, move along. Or you can just say, well, the system can't be reached. Here's the cached version of what you were seeking. All of that being completely pushed base. So all of those things are part of that. And they say resilient and responsive as well in terms of the manifesto itself. Resilient meaning I can beat on it and it doesn't go down. And we can certainly say that's the case, for example, Rx. With Rx, Rx actually serves as the backbone for Cortana, which is in the next version of the Windows phone. So it's very, very resilient, and it's very architecture in terms of how it can scale up and scale down. And once again, since it's push-based, it can be very, very responsive. You don't get an application like Visual Studio, which likes to wait around for a stimulus, and if it doesn't come, your system turns into a very big white screen. Reactive applications tend to try and update as much as it can at a given point and keep the system alive so that it doesn't block as much as possible. So that's really, to me, the understanding of reactive applications. To me, the most important being is that responding to a stimulus, whatever that is, then the rest of it kind of just falls in line as well. But when we're talking about functional reactive programming, that's when we're getting into a whole new ball of wax. And why I say that is because Connell Elliott and Paul Hudak came out a while ago with a paper on this back in the 1990s. And there's been a lot of confusion with this where people seem to think that if you can do higher order operations such as map, filter, reduce, flat map, etc., that's what you've designed was functional reactive programming. And that's not really true. Instead, what it is, is that it's basically you can start with an idea of the following kind of things. It has dynamic and evolving values, which means you basically you get values over time. Okay, that's a pretty simple concept. So they're usually called behaviors here, where at any given point, you still have a value, but that value can change over time pretty easily. And then you can model certain things as behaviors, whether it's a clock, because a clock, even though it continues to move, 
without you doing anything, it still has a consistent value. I can look at my clock and it says it's a certain time right now and it's going to change. And they can happen n number of times and it's just continuously over time. So it's not virtually over time, it's continuous notion of time here that we're talking about. And then there's another kind of thing which may or may not have a value, which is to say that it's an event. So an event happens and it has an associated time with it as well as a particular value. But at any point, I can't just ask for an event of its current value. That's just not the way that that thing works. So that's kind of the differentiation between the two things is what we're talking about with reactive programming is a fairly similar concept sorry, fairly easy concept of responding to stimulus. What we're talking about with functional reactive programming is we're talking about values over time, consistent time we're talking about. And then we're just talking about discrete events over time where it has a value associated with it and a time that it happened. And it has to get very much denotational semantics, which means it's very obvious what it means. And so it's very deterministic concurrency and everything else that you get from it. So it's good not to mix those two metaphors together. When you say consistent time, Mm -hmm. that's more about consistently happening, not consistent as in regular interval, correct? It's consistent over time, meaning time is a constant. It's always going to be flowing behind the scenes. So that's kind of what I mean by that. There's a consistent time. It's always happening, always behind the scene. Whether you're observing a value or not, the time is still shifting. Okay. That's what I was thinking of, but I wanted to make sure it was clear for me and anybody listening that it's not every second consistent time. It may be one second and then five minutes later, but time is still moving on, right? Correct. It's consistently moving. And so when people ask about is Rx FRP, the answer is, well, there are certain pieces of inspiration that we took from it, but the answer is no, it certainly isn't. And the reason why is that we have a notion of virtual time in the reactive extensions in the fact that in our particular system, the concurrency model can be switched out at any point of the computation. So whether it's using consistent time or it's using virtual time, it doesn't really matter to us. We can still perform the same higher order operations on them regardless of timing aspect. So that's why we say it's not a true FRP system. We don't have continuous time. We have virtual time. Is the virtual time something along the lines of some of those things like Lamport timestamps? or some of those other timestamps? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can certainly say that. For example, I can run through historical data through there, and it might have a timestamp of, say, 1999, but it's running right now in near real time in terms of it's moving through the system. It thinks it's in the 1990s, but it's happening now. So basically, we're able to push through to the system and say, hey, here's the clock it thinks it is in time. So in virtual time, it's 1999. And we're going to pump data through this to run a simulation from the first half of 1999 to the end of 1999, even though we're running in the year 2014. Because I can fake it out in terms of I can switch the implementation of what time really is. And even though it'll say like a day has passed in terms of the data, That's not really true. It's really running as fast as it possibly can through my system. Okay, that sounds like a pretty good overview of both reactive and functional reactive. So the functional reactive is dealing more with events as streams, purely. Correct, yep. So that's one of those things that kind of reminds me of what I've heard. I don't know how big this is outside of the .NET and more alt.net environment, but things like CQRS, mm-hmm. where you're dealing with discrete events and it's almost more of a message bus style. And it's that very, I've got small discrete events, and then I essentially build up on those events yep. and aggregate them or do whatever I need to to get an end result, correct? Yep. 
But what's interesting about that is it also has a notion of virtual time in there as well in the fact that you can run that event log all the way back through into the current system So for full traceability aspects of it. So, for example, I'm running a banking system and I'm running everything through CQRS. Well, I've got this distinct log as it's going along, time stamping when everything happens so that I have them in order so that they can be replayed at any point. One of the other things that gets you, and I believe you've talked about this mm-hmm. with Reactive JS and some of these other Reactive Extension frameworks, mm-hmm. was the ability to kind of roll up and aggregate values. Because I yep. think I've heard something about this with, I think it's pronounced Riemann, and Clojure, which is an add-on to like Isinga or Nagios with monitoring, where you take these events coming in and you can say, you know what, don't flood me with these events. I just need to know if how much did the mouse move in distance over this period of time, or how many different events did I get, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And that's what really establishes us well above and beyond most other systems out there, whether they're ACA-based or languages like Elm or Bacon or whatever, is the fact that we have a lot of these kind of aggregation operations, as we call them, that are very, very useful. So one demo that I like to show off while I'm doing this is to start doing some real-time stock ticker analysis. So what I can do is I can take a stream of stock ticks as they come in, and then I can start to group them by their particular stock ticker symbol. So now what I have is I have an observable of observables grouped by their particular symbol. Now what I can do inside of there is that I can take each individual stream, so say Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Apple, you name the company, and it's in there. Now I can start doing analytics on each individual's company's thing as they come through. So, for example, now I can do, for example, a buffer operation. I want to say I'm going to buffer and I want everything in the past, say, hour that happened in terms of data points that come through or maybe even a minute, doesn't really matter what the notion of time really is. But what I can do is I can then start to buffer it based upon that or the number of ticks that come through, and I can decide any number of things. So for example, I can see if the price has spiked on a particular stock by doing the first the group by, then I do the buffer by the given amount of time, and that buffer allows me to look at it and say, okay, now I've changed by 10%. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Am I going to buy or am I going to sell this particular stock? That is really kind of a cool thing that you can do. We also have these window operators, which are kind of like buffers. So buffers are more array-based, so I ask for the past 10 values, I'll get 10 values in an array. But what I can also do is create windows that operate on any number of stimulus, whether it's purely on numbers count-based, whether it's on time-based, or even arbitrary events-based. So it has an opening that says, okay, when this particular event happens, that's my opening, and then when this particular event happens, that's my closing uh, for this particular window. And what this window then gives you is an observable of observables, so you can start to look at each window as it comes along, and then further transform those as they come in. So if you're really into complex event processing, whether it's looking at the big data problems as they happen, it's really kind of a neat thing where you can start to do arbitrary query on streaming data without ever having to touch disk. To me, one of the major disadvantages of the traditional MapReduce on Hadoop is the fact that it has to A, reside on disk, and B, it's a batch system, so it's going to take a while. Versus this more reactive system where I can start taking the data as it comes along and I can share this data with any number of other streams so that I transform it into this stream. I can subscribe to it from any number of streams. So it's very multicast in its nature and the fact that I can start to slice and dice this particular stream any number of ways, whether it's through group buys, whether it's by windows and buffers or even group join kind of things where you're group joining it over time-based things. So it's very SQL-ish in terms of its behavior. Basically, if you can do an operation in SQL, you can do an operation on events. So what we like to say is that 
not only is SQL Server whatever a database, but so is your mouse. Your mouse can be queried in the same exact fashion using the SQL-ish like language that we use. Yeah, that's one of the things I've heard is it really cleans up a lot of the UI events because if you need to display something only while you're in an area or do something when you move out of an area kind of thing, it's easy to be able to track that and say, well, you're in this bounds. I do or do not care. Absolutely. And it's really great in the fact that you can program a lot of this without having any state at all in the outside world because usually when you're doing event-based programming, you have to have some sort of state sitting around. One of the biggest cases that you ever hear about is mouse drag. How do you compute mouse drag? Well, it's the mouse down event. So, okay, when mouse down happens, you have to say, well, the mouse is down. And then you have to say, okay, when the mouse button goes up, then I say the mouse button is no longer down. So I have this little Boolean flag sitting around there. And then on the mouse move, when the mouse happens to be down, I'll do something with it, whether it's reporting the current location, whatever it is. That sort of thing leads to pieces of state just sitting around, which is very ugly, and it's very hard to create these composite events that way. But in the reactive extensions, at the very least, it's very, very simple to do that. So you can say mouse down dot flat map, mouse move dot take until mouse up, or select many mouse moved until mouse up, depending on which language you like to use. But it's literally that compact in terms of how you just told the system, I'm going to take this event and this event until this event happens. And at no point did I have any state sitting around in the meanwhile that cluttered up things. And not only that, but it also adds another feature, which is really nice about Rx, is the fact that when you combine these events together and then you subscribe to them, when you're finished doing whatever you're doing, when you unsubscribe, calling dispose, what that does is that goes through the entire chain and releases all of the event handlers. So what you don't have is you don't have to remove an event listener yourself. It automatically cleans that up for you, which makes event programming now very compositional because now you can start combining all sorts of events and other things like promises, XHRs, and so forth in JavaScript together. And you don't have to worry about cleaning up any of that because of the fact that it does that all for you. And even in .NET, when you combine tasks and observables and events and all of that, all of that still applies. It cleans all of that up for you, so it makes event programming a breeze. And so you can now say, when my mouse is within a certain point of the screen, I want drag and drop to work, and then when it doesn't, I want to stop it. And when it stops, boom, it cleans up all of the events. Yeah, I've heard it's really beautiful once you kind of get it. But unfortunately, I haven't had the chance to be able to work with it other than just kind of research into it, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get you on. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, it's a little challenging in some regards for people to pick it up. And I'll be one of the first to admit that, is that many people say, wow, it's mind-blowing kind of stuff. But really, in the grand scheme of things, it's not. In fact, it's simple enough that you probably could have invented it yourself in the fact that if you know how to program using arrays, and lists, and what have you in .NET or JavaScript, then you already know how to use Rx. It's really no different other than thinking that your arrays and its values are queryable. And now you have the very same aspect of your mouse events now being queryable as well. And so Jafar Hussein and I, he's the dev lead from Netflix who's given a lot of Rx talks, he and I have come up with a nice tutorial in which we kind of teach some of the fundamentals of functional programming. So you start with the simple stuff of doing four eaches over various lists and such. And then you start to do some more interesting things such as filters, reduces, maps, etc. Until you start to realize, well, this is really simple. I kind of can get a hold of this and it makes a lot of sense. And then we turn it on its ear and we say, all right, now you're dealing with events. 
Now do the same thing. And that's when it really starts to click with people as they solve some hard problems using nothing but compositional style of maps, filters, reduces, etc. for iterative data. Now they started to do the same for push-based data. So that's how a lot of people learn about this. And then they're like, oh yeah, then I can add in the notion of time because, well, really what Rx is, unlike regular, say, arrays, it's a collection plus a time aspect of it. So for example, an interval is a time-based aspect of it. A delay of a second is a time-based aspect of your computation. But all in all, it's literally just collections over time. That's all we call it. When we first actually created Rx, it used to be just called link to events, just to make it easier for people to understand what we were doing. So have you yourself done a lot or know of people who've done quite a bit more with reactive programming at a larger scale? And not just the UI, but kind of across systems? Oh, sure. So, for example, Netflix is a heavy, heavy user of Rx, and it's in a number of languages. So they were a great early partner of ours, and they worked with us using the reactive extensions for .NET and so forth for their Windows client. But then they started to realize that there were more interesting scenarios that they could solve on the server because of this. So Ben Christensen from Netflix, who's one of their senior backend engineers, decided to port the reactive extensions to Java. And so a lot of their infrastructure and their APIs and so forth are running using RxJava. So when you're talking about scale, I don't think there are many places that scale as much or have to scale as much as Netflix. There are others, uh, of course, Microsoft being another one, whether you're dealing with a kind of a Cortana-like scenario where you're talking about large amounts of data, telemetry data from your phone and so forth, that needs to be coordinated over time. So it really does work over scale. What we're finding is that people are naturally able to tease out a lot of their designs and saying, well, I can now create an operator for this and create an operator for that. I can solve back pressure problems, any number of things that we can do. And because Rx is so flexible and composable, people have been really eager to pick it up and move it to any number of platforms. So, of course, Rx Java is there. And then you have the GitHub folks working on an Objective-C Reactive Cocoa, which is kind of like an Rx for Cocoa. Not quite, but somewhat like it. And so they use Reactive Cocoa on their GitHub client for the Mac and Rx for .NET on their Windows client. And so it's really just spreading from language to language, and it's really cool to see what people are doing with it. Right now, I'm still in the process of porting Rx to Ruby. It's taking me a while, I know, but because we just have so much massive uptake on all the other languages, we only have so much time in the day to manage it all, especially when we're working with internal and external partners. But suffice it to say, the Ruby world will have it soon. Rx Python is doing quite well as well, starting to really get embraced by the Python community. And I'm certainly hoping that the one we create for Ruby does the same. So it really does work on every scale, whether it's on JavaScript to the server in .NET and in Java, or even in Node.js and JavaScript, really, for that matter. Yeah, it's one of those things where you kind of mentioned the Hadoop processing system. At work, we have a lot of log lines with HTTP calls and things like that, and to figure out the different HTTP lines and group them by different identifiers of endpoints or essentially different kinds of query parameters based off users or things that we run. Mm -hmm. And be able to kind of aggregate those up seems like it's a pretty neat type of thing. And it's one of those things I was kind of leaning to and trying to push for worth work a little bit was things like using RabbitMQ yep. to be able to just publish these as messages Yep. But then it's kind of built on top of a message bus and essentially turn a almost a pull-based notification of querying a message bus into a push base across different applications, right? Yep, absolutely. And so, I mean, that's the great thing about it is, yeah, is that any number of applications can then start subscribing and starting to twist and turn the data to any which way they like 
that's really the cool factor of reactive programming is the fact that you can set up so many endpoints to do any number of things, whether uh, and maps, filters, reduce, whatever you want to do to the data is pretty easy. How do you turn some of those things into streams across the different applications? Is it just kind of the same library that gets reused, or is there something that you guys adapt to to be able to do or recommend just in general with reactive programming of being able to turn those events into streams of events that you can have multiple subscribers to? The interesting thing is, so we're very different in terms of when people think of streams a lot of the times, they think of a very much a unicast style of we have one producer and one consumer. And Rx certainly isn't the case for that. Uh, In fact, at any point, you can have any number of subscribers and the underlying observable has no idea how many people are actually listening or not at any given point and that they're not really supposed to know. And so what you can do to try and and make this an interesting scalable system, and like I said, is you can start to move work off onto other machines. For example, we have remoting stuff that we've done with .NET, so you could literally take a piece of other code, of Rx code, and run it on a different machine, and then you're doing RPC calls through it. And so what we've done, actually, is One really cool demo that we used to have, and I don't know if we still have it around, which was remote painting on a different machine. So we would move our mouse on one machine and we'd be painting on a different one just through the power of Rx. And the fact that since there's that notion of that virtual time and that scheduler, we can just immediately swap it out and say, now it's remoted somewhere else. So all that data goes somewhere else and is computed somewhere else. When it comes to doing a lot of other things, the beauty of Rx in particular, is the fact that it follows very much like iEnumerable has iQueryable for doing expression tree-based transformations. We have iObservable, which is kind of the dual of iQueryable. So it's basically the same thing as iObservable, but what you're dealing with is expression trees. So for example, now you can start to transform it into any different language that you want to. So for example, you could have a Rx to O data, you can have an Rx to this and Rx to that, as long as you can translate a particular expression tree to the given system's language, then that becomes yet another reactive component. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a couple of good, interesting ways for people to think about and me to think about is not just RPC calling mm-hmm. into another machine, but essentially transform having a reactive extension or listener. Right sitting and listening to one message queue and then publishing out its different aggregates to a different message queue where people may want the aggregate information, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's great about that is the fact that, you know, we have so many operators where we can do sums, averages, and what have you, but we can also do rolling aggregations, windowing, buffering, joins, and so forth. So like I said, if you can think of anything in SQL-like language, well, we kind of support that. So It very much supports that kind of scenario, yeah. So have you noticed a big difference between the different languages you're doing reactive extensions in? Because I know there's JavaScript, there's C-sharp. You mentioned you're working on a Ruby, dealing with a little Python. There's also an F-sharp one, I believe. That's more of an F-sharp-ish. Yeah, that's more uh, veneer than anything. And, And it's basically just so that we have the observable module and then we start to tack on various methods onto it so that you can do F-sharp like pipelining using the normal pipe operator. So you can do maps and filters and scans and so forth using the piped compositional style of F-sharp. Yeah, we've run into any number of interesting things between languages. Since, for example, JavaScript is a single-threaded language, it always brings us neat challenges in sorts of ways, for example, we can't introduce blocking operators into JavaScript, or rather we don't want to because it could be time-based and that would just freeze the browser and kill it. But then again, there are some very interesting things that we can do in JavaScript. For example, we can use any number of scheduling mechanisms, whether it's using set timeout, set immediate, process.nextTick on Node, or any number of other tricks using post messages or message channels or mutation observers, any number of those things, it's really kind of flexible in terms of how we schedule things. 
Not only that, but we're getting to several points where we're trying to implement kind of the queryable aspects of RxJS so that you could write expression trees in JavaScript and so that you could interoperate with .NET versions or anything else that can understand expression trees. So what would be fascinating about that would be so that you could fully remote an expression tree to a different machine, have it processed there, and have it sent back. Those are kind of the things that we're kind of working on now, which is, like I said, why certain things take a certain amount of time for us to get to. Ruby is very interesting as well, because trying to fit Rx into a very Ruby-ish style sometimes presents a challenge, because you certainly don't want it to look exactly like C-sharp, because there are many things that Ruby does and has that make it a very unique and special language, and we really want to take advantage of those things. And not only that, but they don't really have a a notion of threads threads per se, but more along the lines of green threads. So they have some very interesting things there. So we can model concurrency slightly different than we do in, say, JavaScript or .NET. Those are the really big things. And then, of course, C++ is an entirely different beast altogether because C++, you can do template specialization till your heart's content. And you can really start to do some really amazing things that you just can't even do with .NET generics. That, and it's really lightning fast uh, what we can do with C++. The good news about the Java space is the fact that what you can do is write it once for the JVM, and then you can write adapters, much like the F-sharp adapter you know, in .NET. You can have one for Groovy, Scala, JRuby, Clojure, and so forth so that they can operate on pretty much the same library. It's just there's this little shim layer, so it makes it look and feel like it belongs as part of the language. So it's very much a learning process because we really kind of get to know and understand a language very, very well as we're writing Rx for it. We may have not known some of the deep, deep details about threads and mutexes and so forth and all the other languages, but it's good to know. Once you finally start to implement it and realize there's reentrancy problems and there's this and there's that problem that we have to solve. To follow that on, if someone's interested in this and the language isn't quite there yet, mm-hmm. for things like maybe people are working in Haskell or Erlang as they listen to this and are kind of more interested in bringing in some other ways of working in a reactional manner because they're in a functional language, what's some of the ways to figure out how to get reactive extensions moving to a platform for them, either with them doing it or... Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, we have a number of them we've put out over time. Like, we put out an Objective-C one that we had done back in, say, 2010, a long, long time ago. And so that was just kind of for people to use as kind of a reference. It wasn't meant to be anything where people were going to pick it up and do something with it versus what we're trying to honestly do with Python and Ruby. Now, with other languages, luckily, there are some people that have already done a good number of them, whether it's in PHP, there's one out there, there's one that someone did in ActionScript, there is one that someone started in Haskell. So there are a good number of those ones already done. So if you could understand how it's done in, say, Haskell or something like that, then it might be easier for you to understand how you might want to do it in OCaml or some other language. So to me, it's great that we've got some learning examples out there already. And what we're trying to do is stand up kind of a reactive extensions overall portal where people can come and learn about the languages we've already implemented, but also where people can come in there and say, hey, I'm working on this particular version. I'd like some help. The good news is that we have so many tests to back up the behavior that we have for Rx, whether it's .NET, JavaScript, C++, and so forth, is that we're backed by thousands upon thousands of tests so that you can easily, when you're looking at doing it in your particular language, that if you follow the same kind of tests in terms of when things happen, how things happen, as long as you can conform to that, and conform to our grammar and so forth, then it should be rather easy. So what I've seen is some people even starting on languages such as Swift. I don't know how far they're getting, but it's certainly exciting. So the reactive portal, is the goal to be 
you want to understand reactive programming, here's a bunch of other resources and things like that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So there are a couple of really good books out there. There's already intro to rx.com. There's some books already written. And if you go to the RxJS GitHub site, there's plenty of resources there as well. But yeah, the idea is to kind of take all of this data that we have and aggregate into one place. Because if we're talking about certain operators such as maps and filters, you know, we're in .NET terms, where and select and so forth, then we can kind of share a lot of the same documentation throughout because the signatures are going to match, the intents are going to match, and so forth. And the way we describe the intent of a lot of operators is through a thing that we call marble diagrams. And what these marble diagrams show is basically you start off with one line with your particular piece of data, and then as it gets transformed into something else, it starts to point the arrows down to the next particular line. So in the case of filter, you have some red dots and blue dots, and you have a filter in the middle that says, I only want the blue dots, so all of the red dots disappear in the middle, and then you have projected on the line below it only the blue dots. So we can now show basically how each and every operator works conceptually with pictures and not just code. And all of that will be consistent through each language. And those are kind of the diagrams that I'm guessing I've seen with the intro to RX yeah. by Andre Stoltz on like his GitHub gist and all that, right? Correct, yes. And so if you go to rxmarbles.com, I don't believe it works in IE, but it works in other browsers. It has a lot of those diagrams already out there. And if you look through the RxJava wiki on their GitHub repo, you'll find a lot of those marble diagrams there as well. So it's just a matter of taking all of those and putting them in a single place. And it seems like a lot of this stuff is, it may be some specific terminology, but a lot of this stuff we've been talking about should still be general to things like you mentioned with a little bit of Bacon or Elm or the React framework from Facebook too, right? If you can understand this, that you might have the specifics to figure out, but... Yeah, I mean, in theory, sure. I mean, React is kind of a, an interesting case because React is more along the lines of dealing with the virtual DOM and components and so forth. So it's not as, say, reactive as Rx is, but what they do together is really something kind of amazing where you can mix RxJS and React together to expose all of its events and so forth as observables then it becomes even more interesting. Or your entire service layer, for example, is nothing but observable so that you can start reacting easily to events and so forth. Angular, we found kind of the same way, is that Angular and Rx play very well together. So we created an Rx Angular library out there so that you can observe on a given scope. You can easily go from a promise or a deferred from Angular and go to and RxJS observable, any number of those things. We have some great examples out there of how it works, and it's really nice. We have some directives, we have some factories and so forth that you can use, as well as even a scheduler, so you can, say, schedule some work to be safe applied on a given scope. So it's all of those kinds of things that I'd like to cover more on at least RxJS, how well we play with others, because we're certainly not a replacement for everything, although we can be. Okay. And I may have been thinking a little more of the Ohm framework by David Nolan. Right. Yeah. Instead of just pure React as well. So Exactly. Yeah. What you're talking about more might be Flux and React together, which what we found is that Rx and React pretty much are almost one and one the same thing, but you get so much more with RxJS than you do with Flux. Okay. I think we've covered a lot on reactive extensions. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the paper in the beginning about reactive programming, and you mentioned the portal you're working to get set up. What was the actual site of that? How did people find that portal? It's reactivex.io. And, of course, you can also find us on Twitter at, at reactivex. So if you can spell reactive and then add an X on to it, you're good to go. And we tend to blast out a lot of information, whether it's retweets and so forth, from people doing some really amazing things with Rx. And we hope to showcase it there on our site and so forth. And really, we're nowhere close to being done. The Rx Java folks are, of course, pushing the envelope. We're pushing the envelope. 
What we're going to be doing with Rx.net coming forward is going to be game-changing. We're by no means done from where we are right now. And that's really the exciting thing about it. It's just there's so much for us to do and so much for us to expand to. I'm rather excited. And all of this is open open source, correct? Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So if someone's looking at the Ruby or some of these other languages that they've got and want to come and help you out, they should just be able to find you out on GitHub and help contribute as well, right? Exactly. So you kind of mentioned in your intro, and just kind of to end, Mm-hmm. Do you want to tease kind of what you're thinking is coming in the next 20 years and what people might be that you've been working on? Okay. Well, what I have a passion about is hardware, at least as of recently. Chris Williams, the founder of JSConf, has really kind of gotten me into playing with Arduinos and so forth. And it really kind of got me in such a way that I found very, very interesting that we are coming up on this age of the Internet of Things where... We have all of our devices talking to each other, whether it's our phones, whether it's our computers, our cars, or our refrigerators, ovens, microwaves, etc., is that our software world is going to start changing immensely, whereas we're talking about building stuff on a web server or building it on a server rack today. What we're talking about down the line is on embedded chips somewhere, or it's part of a micro-operating system. It's part of a light bulb. It's those kinds of things that make it very, very interesting where we can start applying programming to. The problem is, of course, has been is that most programmers are afraid of a nine volt battery. If they put it on their tongue, they're going to get shocked and or they start playing with electronics. They're going to short out their circuits and burn their house down. But I ultimately think there's this fundamental shift in what's going on because the commoditization of all of these particular boards, whether they're Beagle Bones or Arduinos, Netduinos, etc. It's very, very interesting just how cheap they are and how easy it is to get started. And now that people are kind of democratizing the languages behind them, so you can do C Sharp, you can do C++, you can do JavaScript, Ruby, Python, etc., is it really kind of brings it down to a level where most of us can understand. But as I said, as devices are getting smaller and as they're getting more and more embedded, it gives us as programmers more opportunities to do really amazing things and potentially even life-saving things. You know, as we start to get into where devices can help in health, where we can create the next 3D printer, you know, it's all of those things I think is a very exciting thing for software people to be interested in right now. And that's kind of why we have so much passion about what we do with RobotsConf, where you get to come there, you get to play with all the hardware you could possibly want for two days, and then have a science fair at the end where you kind of show and tell what you've been up to. And this particular summer we held at JSConf, we had the traditional NodeCopter, which was started back in 2012 in Germany by Felix Geisendorfer, Robin Mayner, and a few others. And it's really kind of exploded onto the scene where it's not just node copters anymore, but we did node rockets this time where people were programming rockets with nothing but JavaScript, and they were programming boats with nothing but JavaScript. These little tiny DIY boats with a ship and a shield on it, and you're good to go. It's a really, really cool time to be involved with this stuff and really to get ahead of it. Because the more you understand now, the more relevant you are in the future. Because I honestly think that as we're doing a lot of these things, we're kind of paving the way for the future. Sounds real interesting. It also sounds like there's a nice little mashup there between that and all the reactive programming stuff you're doing as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a perfect fit for the Internet of Things. and Because everything is a sensor. And so when everything you think about is a sensor, you can also think of as a database. And what can databases do? Be queried. So therefore, something like Rx is absolutely perfect for that because what you're doing is you're taking all of those different kinds of systems, which may talk any number of languages or any number of ways of asynchronous, event-based, what have you, And we can distill it down to a single kind of interface that we can talk to each other in. And that's the really important part. 
is that we might all be speaking different languages in terms of programming languages, but we're all speaking the same language when it comes to describing how we're doing our workflow in Rx. Yeah, because it seems like the Internet of Things and all those little sensors around your house, you may be throwing in a couple thermometers in each room with different areas and being able to say, okay, go bring me updates of my temperatures around the house and know my humidity and measurements because yep, maybe I need something to water my plants or I've hacked my AC system to put dampers with on circuit boards mm-hmm. to cut airflow to certain areas. So this room's getting hot, but this room's still a decent temperature yep. or vice versa. Go put some dampers on and just redirect all the air to that room specifically. Exactly. And since you can do those time-based operations where you start time slicing, then you can better anticipate based upon, say, the temperature outside or any number of all those other things. So you can start to do not only their basic reactive behavior, but also some predetermined behavior based upon what you already know. Sounds really interesting and would love to keep an eye on that now that I know about it a little more, about all the different hardware stuff that's going on, especially since... As you mentioned, the Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and all these other things are able to run a lot of these higher-level languages that we've Mm -hmm. been talking about during the show and not just pure systems programmings down in the C level. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it really is the democratization of hardware going on right now where you have even board manufacturers like Tesla out there with JavaScript directly on the board. So you don't have to know a systems language as long as you know JavaScript and How many people don't know JavaScript at this point? Yeah, sounds real interesting. I'm glad we got that little tease in there when you expanded on that. That gives some things to think about as well and other areas of thinking about reactive programming and what might be coming down in the future. So is there anything else you'd like to plug that we didn't cover? Presentations you're going to go speaking at since you mentioned you give a lot of presentations or... So I will be at JSConf EU next week, so I don't know when this is coming out, but JSConf EU, I will be there talking about kind of some patterns around async programming and so forth, and whether we're following best practices or not. That's going to be the main track to that one. I'm also speaking at Build Stuff in Lithuania in November. In addition, I may or may not be attending QCon. It depends on the timing of things and whether I can help out Jafar with his workshop or not. But it's exciting times. It definitely is. And then, of course, there's RobotsConf. Okay, and you mentioned the Reactive X site and the Twitter account, but is where else can people track you down and follow you and get more information? Well, I am uh, at Mad Padwaisaki, so if you can find me there, you can follow me there. It's I spit out all sorts of information, whether it's on functional programming, reactive programming, etc. If it's programming-related, chances are I'm talking about it in some form or fashion. So it's that kind of stuff you'll find when following me. Hopefully there's more signal than noise, but who knows. Sounds good. I'll make sure to include links to all that stuff in the show notes. Great. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I would like to thank Matt for giving his time to join me today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Great, thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.